0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of or a podcast of the Echelon Cycling Podcast. And as always, I'm joined by our two other hosts as well. That is, of course, Patrick of Audu Cycling and our very own Mr. Krigon himself, Ewan Wilson. And guys, um, yeah, very interesting week of cycling. We'll get on to all of it. But uh well, not all of it. Sorry, Tour of Algeria, sorry, tour of tour one But uh yeah, anything stand out to you guys other than Milan Sanremo?
1: Um, there was a couple of funny moments this week, and some of the uh, I don't want to call them like insignificant races, but they were just kind of like the uh, the footnotes of the week, and they they were good races, and it was just really funny to see the uh, I think it was Standerwolf. I can't remember what what happened, but entirely or why it happened, but he basically just rode straight on at a corner and landed in a huge pile of just animal manure which was probably quite it was quite funny to probably everybody except standervolf um, i can't remember what the name of the race was i think uh, you and us um it-
2: it's either Nukeda corsa or it's the coxside classic either it's one of those yeah. they kind of blended into one in my head yeah but uh-huh. also at that race, a terrible advert for Bianchi for uh, the Alsatian Ugo Osteter, whose handlebars broke not once but twice during the course of Nocada Cursa. Yeah, a bit of a, an, an interesting week in terms of memeability from Belgium. So we'll give them that.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, there's been a few bike mechanic, like spectacular failures. But yeah, I think not really what you want. Like the one last year where he... Celebrator over the line, and then the bike collapsed under him, or whatever. I can't remember uh, what happened. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah I that know
1: was you mean. Yeah, Didn't, he used to ride. For, I can't remember what his name, is Eduardo Prades. Is that his name? He used to ride from Bobby Star Smart. Yeah, I think he hates bike collapsed. Or like during when Yuma Visma's wheels just shattered. Great advert for Shimano wheels there. I think everybody was probably just a bit scared who was riding those at that time
0: but anyway uh we are of course uh, alluding to the biggest well we're not alluding to anything but the biggest one of the biggest races of the calendar was the milan san remo 2023 we're all very excited to see it and uh yeah guys what did you think we had the big well at one point we had the three what three four of the biggest names in cycling on the top of the podio
1: it was i really enjoyed it this year i know it is the classic kind of snoozing up to the Cipresa and the Cipresa was surprisingly unselective this year in comparison to last year but nothing extensive happened there I think UAE tried to make it hard but I think the wind direction just didn't favour them and then just kind of flew into Poggio and it was just it was so fast I swear like every year it just gets faster and faster into the base of there Bahrain took it into the base of there and they were drilling it for Mahoric and then UAE comes over the top of them and it was probably dare I say the one of the most exciting Poggio's that I've ever watched. Um and I've been watching this race for over eight years now. And I think that was probably the most exciting one that I've seen.
2: Yeah, it, it was it was definitely um I mean with San Remo, you're guaranteed a wonderful sort of hour of racing towards the end from the Chi Press all the way to the Via Roma. You're guaranteed action. And um yeah, the speed was definitely super high. Maybe because sort of these other teams know they have to do more. Because San Remo is no longer really a sprinter's classic, as we've known it to be over sort of the 2010s and 2000s, the last, like, sort of that that period, it was very much a sprinter's race. Nowadays, it isn't. It's about brute force and attacking away. I think the fact that we've we've had uh, solo rides or two riders to the line every year since the COVID break probably demonstrates that, how, how the, this race has evolved so greatly. And... This year, yeah, it was it was very fascinating. You had the sort of intrigue of Pogacar and, and Tim Wellens with that sort of premeditated attack um, and that sort of group of four going out, like the four horsemen of the apocalypse almost. Pipogana, Ogana, Fanart, Van Der Poel, and Pogacar riding together. Uh, before Van der Poel made the winning move over the top of the Poggio. And I mean, it had to be Van der Poel to to sort of get that intrigue as well, for him to get that sort of explosive biblical attack over the top of this hill and to go solo all the way to the end, to replicate what his grandfather did 61 years ago, I believe. And to win this race, it really was sort of a nice moment. It felt very apt for for Van der Poel, who is such a sort of big moment rider. I mean, they talk about like basketball and football and stuff about like big match players. Who can sort of rise the occasion? Um, you know, Lino it's a
0: cycling here. podcast, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But <laughs> it just drawing comparisons from the, the biggest sport in the world in terms of people coming at, at the biggest occasion and performing there and then, and Vanderpol does that almost better than anybody else in the pro peloton.
1: I think you're right. There is just that, that, that Vanderpol magic that we've we've talked about a few times on this podcast about just Vanderpol has his uh, ability more than other people to just. He can be looking bad, bad, bad in races, and then it's just and it just comes around. He just he knows how to time these things, and I just loved how aggressive UAE were on the Podgio. I loved the villains and and two up attack. I thought that was amazing. It was we so fast and actually aggressive. Actually, said
0: that in the in the clip last week. Yeah, we actually said that that was probably because we were speculating how Gacha actually could win this. Um, there was actually, to be fair, there was one of our subscribers, Chris Wagner, who actually said that
1: uh, Pogaccio
0: was going to finish fourth. So
1: Fair play. <laughs> you got it right. That was a pretty good guy. Yeah. I just loved how it was just completely strung out and then Pogaccio just, you, it cuts to the front shot and Pogaccio is absolutely just ripping his handlebars. just And it's just the most aggressive scintillating attack I've ever seen. I was like, this is so cool. And like Cernclaw can't quite hold the wheel, and then Ghana closes it. Wildmanart and van Aert and It's just four massive names in cycling, and there's some great pictures out there of all them of those four riding to the top there. And I just don't think it could have been a, a better four really to to go over the top. I think the only thing that could could have made it better was if it was perhaps not just a Poel solo victory. Maybe there was a bit of uh, a bit of intrigue going up to the line as to ooh, who's going to win a sprint. But I do think, yeah, like you and said, the kind of the fact that that Van der Poel is following in the footsteps of his grandfather is just a very uh, ceremonious thing. That Van der Poel just keeps on showing his kind of res- not respect, but kind of uh, his connection into his cycling history, which a few riders have in the peloton, but Van der Poel is really. Able to show respect to that. And I think that's always a really nice touch when he wins, is that you can kind of throw it back to the, the connection that he has to his like ancestors. If you, well, ancestors makes it seem like they're ages, like hundreds of years old. Just his Arra- granddad. Yeah, a race yeah. his dad
0: didn't win here. So, yeah, winning a race that his dad hasn't won. It's just very poetic. I love it. I think that's what sort of adds to the Van der Poel um,
2: and his narrative is that it is. It is a sort of dynasty with Raymond Polydor, then, then to his own father, and then to himself. And he's been sort of he's been a wonder kid ever since what 2015. He won the senior world championships in cyclocross, and now since then, almost every year he's been world champion in at least one discipline. It, it really is fantastic to see, and uh, to see sort of a nice ending to this to this story as well. Vanderpool um, finally getting Milanus and Raymond uh, under his belt, and. I mean, out of all of the, the, those four guys, they all do. They, they all just bring something so different to the table. They've all got their own narratives. And I think that's what made it very in- intriguing. Maybe if we had a group of four that just, if it was like Maz Pearson, Sam Karnasen, and Matej Mohorich. Whoa. With Pogacha. Whoa. Oh. No but, no, but in terms of of, of like like the, the narrative that, that they all have, we have the tension between Van der Poel and Van Aert that's been there for so long. Pogaccia is the most versatile Tour de France champion in the last 50 years. Uh, Pippo Ganna is is the biggest Italian in cyclist North? that there has been in a very long time. In terms of his, his prestige, he's also from this part of the country and he's an Olympic champion, let's not forget. It adds to it, but between those four guys up in front, there are so many sort of yellow jerseys and sort of rainbow jerseys to be shared amongst them. On that final podium of Van Aert, Pippo Ghana and Fandra I think that there's probably a continuum of rainbow jerseys in multiple disciplines from 2015 onwards, maybe even yeah. no, 2013, maybe since Fandra was junior world champion.
0: I mean, we'll get on to Ghana because I think that we all thought that result came out of nowhere in a way, but it was mm-hmm. absolutely impressive. But uh, Ewan and I did this video on the second day in a few years ago. Uh, much of Underpol. How will he do in the other monuments now? He's won two out of... Well, he's won Ronde van Vlaanderen twice, but now Milan-San Remo, the, the one that was really hard for Gilbert to kind of try and win. How will he do in Paris-Roubaix, and uh, liege and could he even do something in Il Lombardia? He's raced them all, I
1: think, already. I remember it was the COVID edition of Il Lombardia that he did, where I think he came top 10, but it was... Yep. It was one of those days where it was so scorching hot. It was the one where freaking somebody pulled out on Shackman in a car. Do you remember that? And I know Van Der Poel finished ninth, which makes it seem good, but he was quite a long way down. And it was quite a weird addition anyway, in terms of the st- quality of a start list. I feel like the Il Lombardia course would have to be quite an easy or easier addition. And Van Der Poel would have to change tune a little bit and change his... Uh, not his physique, but he'd have to change quite a lot to really be competitive there. But he's been very, he's been competitive in Liège before. I think if he fully targeted it, he could certainly be up there. Uh, I don't see any reason why not when you consider that a lot of the riders last year who were finishing about second group, like a Quentin Hermans, for example. I think Vanderpol was very capable of keeping up with a Quentin Hermans and doing something that he did. If a Remco wasn't up there, then Vanderpoel could win that and. Roubaix, like yeah, he's he can certainly win that. It's just a matter of the, the cards need to fall right. It's just one of those things you need, the mechanical things to go your way, and it's, it's just a bit lucky in that sense. But he's very capable of winning, I think, Roubaix and, and Liège. I think Il Lombardia could be a push there.
2: Yeah, Lombardia, I think, is the one that I sort of struggled to see. But yeah, he did finish top 10 in that COVID edition, which was a strange one. It was kind of the second race day for a lot of riders in the year, maybe the third race day. It was very hot, very attritional. Time gaps were huge that day. Between the top three, there were like minutes. Really, it was Folsang, Bennett, and Vlasov. And I remember just waiting for ages, trying to for the second place rider to come over the line. It was an odd uh, monument, and um yeah i mean liege we look towards that one performance he did in 2020 that was strong yeah it was good uh, also comparing liege to amstel gold he won that race in 2019 but now we're sort of three years into the future maybe his sort of physique is different maybe his plans are different what he wants to do but i think now that he's got uh, another one san remo ticked off uh chances are he will probably podium Ronde van flandera this year maybe Roubaix podium this year could go for the win Liège is a bridge too far. Maybe in sort of 2025, 26, maybe he can go for it. Um, He's not sort of crazy old, so it's not like it's sort of a ticking time bomb, like he's running out of time. I think he will probably get Liège at some point, or at least get a podium in Liège at some point.
0: I mean, yeah, we're, we're all kind of trying to see uh, get this monument rider, and hopefully it won't be a Belgian, although we know he's born in Belgium, uh, like Eddie Merckx, and who's the other one? Roger de Vlaming. So, uh, yeah, we're desperately trying to get this. But, well, I mean, will he do it? Uh, Pyro Bay is going to be a very interesting addition. As you guys said, he's been on the podium before. But, yeah, I completely agree. I think it might be a bridge too far. But, nevertheless, back to Malasan Remo. Ghana, absolutely scintillating sprint that left Pagacha and Wat Van for, yeah, spectators for that second place. What does this mean for Ghana as well? Like, we discounted your Green days, in a way, after Tom Pitcock wasn't going to be in the race. Yeah, They appeared at the front, and we were all like, wait, what's going on? Who are they riding for? And then Ghana just absolutely incredible.
1: Yeah, I think in terms of the Cobble classics, I think Ghana's certainly a threat, considering that Pitcock is, um, well, it's I, do, I, can't, I can't remember seeing an update, but how long he'll be out for, or, you know, Basically, how limited is his training going to be? And then also you have to consider Ben Turner. You know, he crashed in Omloop. So when's he going to come back? It immediately puts Gana further up the the pecking list. In Ineos' eyes, I really consider the only other people who Ineos could consider leaders as maybe a Magnus Sheffield or Navarez. But I really consider those guys to be more... Domestiques, perhaps. I know that Sheffield did have a really good performance at brabant sapel last year where he won, but expecting him to step up that much as somebody who's like 20 years old to be like, right, you're now leading the Tour of Flanders, you know, that might be a weight too much for his shoulders just just for now. But I think that Ghana could certainly launch a real good classic season if he can hold this form just for the next two weeks or so and to Flanders. I don't see any reason why Ghana couldn't do well in those races. His history in those races... I can't ever remember a significant result for those races, up. but, you know, we never saw a significant result from Ghana at Milano San Remo before, I and mean, he's just finished second, so d- history doesn't necessarily correlate to future results. It's very possible that somebody can launch a surprise. Uh, best result in
0: Flanders, 98th, and Ooh. he's only done it twice. <laughs> He didn't finish in 2018. That was 2019, though. He hasn't ridden it since then. Pyro Bay, best result was last year, 35th, but I think he had a lot of bad luck. Out of the time limit, didn't finish in 2018 and 19, but we know he won the under-23 edition. That's the hope that everyone clings on to. Yeah, Ewan?
2: I mean, yeah, in 2018, he was a different rider. Wrote for UAE, let's not forget. My oh, yeah, crowd uh, in 2019 as well. It's kind of under the radar a little bit. He was a good time trialist, but we didn't know him as a classics guy or sort of the engine that he is. But yeah, this definitely was a bit of a surprise. Ghana was just looking so, so good. And for someone who's like 80 plus kilos to be like racking up a, a, a Bapoggio at the same speed as Pogaccia, it's mightily impressive. It's a shame he's not on the start list for Ronde von Flandre at the moment, because I think he uh, would give it a really good shout. But I think Roubaix probably suits his characteristics more, given that Roubaix, it's 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 really a, f- a flat guy engine kind of that wins you parry roubaix we haven't seen many parabes since the COVID break, given that there's been such a big paradigm shift in cycling. But from last year, what we saw with Dylan Van Baaler, I could see Ghana doing a very similar tactic there. And even just like hanging onto the front group in 2021, Ghana could have been there to contend for, for the podium. So yeah, it's um it's definitely pointing towards good things for Pippa Ghana. If everything goes right on the day at Roubaix, I think he would really, really want to get a good result.
0: Well, we could talk predictions as well, because uh we were a bit with Milan Sanremo. On a Dilly I put him down in the previous show. Didn't nothing happened. Uh, Patrick said, "Tadubgacha." You and you said who and the the World Tour series. Uh, I'm yeah, I said well, much of <laughs> for that, but I think I said him for basically every single monument. So I think, uh, yeah. Do you think uh, Filippo Ghana is gonna where is he gonna finish in this year's Paro Bay Since that's the one he's down on.
1: Oh, is it? it's tricky to say. I'll go with a uh, seventh place.
2: I think he's a sort of bust or break. I think he'll finish top
0: five or we'll finish 20th, 30th. I'm going to say Ghana on the podium, but that's probably not going to happen. Nevertheless, now changing the focus onto a women's race. And there was a big story uh, involving a glucose monitor. Uh, what race was it and which rider was it as well? Quite it a was, controversial... It
2: was Strada Bianca, the women's Strada Bianca race, um, and it involves Kristen Faulkner, who is an American from Alaska, riding for the Jayco Aula women's team. She finished in third place after what was a very strong day of racing. She was solo for a lot of it, then got swamped on the final climb by the duo from SD Works. Um, She was announced as third, went on the podium, she got her trophy, she sprayed the Prosecco, and then... A couple of days later, the sort of controversy starts like brewing up There's pictures of the sort of glucose monitor on her arm. It's like a circular dot, you can you can see it in a lot of the pictures. Eventually the UCI addressed this and disqualified Kristen Faulkner from the race, uh, meaning that her podium place was stripped from her on the grounds that she was using a banned piece of equipment. Uh, of course that didn't go down very well with both her, her team and the glucose monitor providers which are Super Sapiens and the Abbott Libra Sensor technology that is used for the super sapient uh, device so she said that uh, she kind of justified it by saying that the glucose monitor wasn't actually connected to anything and she wasn't getting live data I don't know how we can sort of test if that's true or not but regardless I think she will remain disqualified at Strada Bianca but this is sort of setting precedent it's the first time we've had someone disqualified from a professional race either men's or women's of my knowledge for using equipment like
1: this Mm. because I was going to say that I was thinking about this earlier because there is the Novo Nordisk team and that's like full of people with diabetes.
2: Yeah, and also the Super Sapiens Um, or the the technology, it's the CEO of that is also the CEO of Novo Nordisk. That's hired very closely.
1: So do they get an exemption from this rule because they're diabetic? Yeah. Because then this made me immediately think, right, how long is it going to be before I don't know how beneficial this technology is. I know it monitors your glucose levels, so therefore you've you've know kind of if you're basically running low on on energy you need to refuel. But nutrition's so like tip top nowadays that they know how much they need to be eating anyway. And how long is it going to be before somebody thinks, "Oh, this if it is useful, I'm going to claim." that I've somehow got some kind of vague diabetes, kind of similar to when back in the day people claimed that they had asthma so that they could get a TUE. Yeah, exactly. Basically, how long is it going to be before this could become a new grey area where people are like, oh, I've got diabetes, so I need to use one of these. And it's just like, I just feel like it's a dangerous rabbit hole that we could be heading towards and I hope that we just keep it, I hope it just doesn't go to that. There was an
0: argument as well that for junior racing, if you have a junior popping up with this technology, it's separating. It's suddenly creating a level, uh, not a level playing field. And suddenly, these people because they cost like seventy uh, pounds, I think seventy euros. So they're not exactly cheap. But I think you have them for a few weeks.
2: Yeah, a couple of yeah, weeks. it's it's like a hundred. I think it's one hundred thirty euro for uh for two weeks. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, you lot. have to replace them a lot. So it is. It's incredibly expensive. Um, you you can get discounts um, from from certain if you listen to certain podcasts and so forth, they give out discount codes. Um, but it's it's incredibly expensive. The thing is that regardless of, of the cost, there is probably an advantage. You're getting live glucose data, although she says it wasn't live, but you can have access to that data. And knowing that is probably quite important to fueling strategy and knowing how to perform at your best. That's how they market this whole thing: is knowing how to fuel yourself and be at your tip top performance. So there's evidently an, an advantage. It's, it's it's like a power meter. I think people riding with power meters now yeah. probably know a lot more mm. than people who didn't ride with power meters. It's true. So there is probably an advantage. If it was disconnected, then there was no advantage. But why would you wear it if it's disconnected? right it? Yeah.
1: Knowing, knowing well, yeah.
2: that it's banned. Oh well, yeah, exactly. I
1: don't I didn't get that. It's just like, if you know that it's banned and you know it's going to cause a bit of a ruckus, I know they cost a bit, but like, you're not probably paying for this. Just take it off. Yeah. Even if it's like, oh, but I've only had it on for a few days. I need to get my next extra 10 days of use out of this. It's like, but you know the risk that's going to come with it. Like, it's not like a discreet thing. Like, it pokes out through the jersey. Well, it bulges the jersey. You know, you can see it quite easily. I just don't, Get why they took the risk on that. It just doesn't make sense. I'm not even sure if you can get a readout to like your Garmin or anything. Yes, where like it needs to go back to your car and they may tell you or something. It's so, like, I don't yeah. think bike computers have got to the point where they're integrating Super Sapiens yet. Maybe it's
2: connected to a phone
1: app. Yeah, maybe <laughs> she was kind of like,
0: like we we're saying, using it for the two weeks and this just happened to be part of that two weeks and then she just didn't want to <laughs> remove it because we know it's 130 quid. So, yeah. may- I, I'm just. Uh, i don't know i don't know or maybe this was all a big marketing
2: play to talk about super sapiens they are very marketing savvy maybe cool. maybe this was all part of the <laughs> yeah this is all part of the plan is that true this would they just to, want to I get on I, I, I like for yeah. it's it's too sort of it's too much to sort of be given third place and to lose a couple days after yeah. but uh yeah it is it, it is a kind of prickly subject if you pardon the part literally yeah um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I think the future going forward is that they will crop up undoubtedly. I know a couple of teams already used the the data, but not in race. I think that's yeah. the difference. Where I know, I believe EF have used it before as well. EF are quite sort of savvy with, with, with using these new technologies like Whoop and so forth to uh, maximize their riders. But using it in race, yeah, that, is, that does seem silly when it's banned. But where is where is the line here? Uh, we have heart monitors that are used yeah. in racing. We have power meters that are used in racing. In road racing, at least in track racing, they are you. You're not allowed to see them. Where do we draw the line? Because is is this not the same? Is this UCI trying to gatekeep new technology and new innovation? Potentially, they've yeah. been doing
1: that in the past an awful lot. Yeah, but at the same time, because I could see some somebody being like, "Oh, but you could have it as like a graphic on screen and some But it's like, yeah, but at the same time, right? Whoop graphics were put up quite a bit last year during the Giro, and is it every it's the meme of like oh, what's Hugh Carthy's stress score for today? Like, that's just a meme now. It's like, how do I live without knowing how much strain Hugh is under? And it's like, I just don't feel like people actually care that much about the statistics Um, of all that. I mean, the only thing would be like, oh, look, somebody's blown up spectacularly. And oh, look, their glucose is low. But I just don't feel like people care enough about the data, unless you're like a bit of a um, cycling kind of nerdy kind of techie type who's kind of really interested in that
0: surely it's for the team in the team car if that was it or the rider but like we we love to say that cycling kind of repeats itself this this topic really feels like when power meters were coming out where it was like oh we only want to see them in training we don't want to see them in racing they're going to make racing boring now they're going to become even more robots than they already are they know their power they know their glucose they know their heart rate it's it's just the yeah, mm-hmm. data, a scientific exercise now. It's not about the passion, the Julien Philippe attack, the Rockler attack, the Alberto Contador. Now everything is just measured to perfection. I don't know. It kind of. I feel like it's becoming too scientific. Yeah. Where's the panache?
2: It's overanalyzed. We do have sort of data overload nowadays. We have teams employing data analysts.
0: What is this? Goldman
2: Sachs. It's, it's, it's extreme to some points. But you can also ar- argue it as well by saying that, you know what? Part and parcel of being a professional athlete is knowing how to feel correctly. It's knowing how to sort of read your body and you have nutritionists working with you all the time to try to help you. Surely you should know how to sort of track yourself during a race. That is your profession after all. So maybe, the, I mean, you could say the same thing about like, oh, you, you should know how, how to sort of pace yourself and to like use your power output correctly throughout the whole stage, which is pretty pretty similar argument there. I don't know. I, I, I also don't think sort of, I get for people with um who are sort of prone and um, susceptible to, to to glucose issues, people with diabetes also suffering with with, with other sort of eating and, and and nutritional problems. I understand that they can get this, but they can also apply for a ther- therapeutic usag- usages exemption. There we go, TV. uh, which allows you to use it for the general masses. I don't quite know if it adds anything to be honest.
0: But then does a heart monitor. Well, I think a heart monitor is quite good. The only reason is you can see when you need a rest day, I think. And heart monitors would uh, allow me to. But again, it's like you said, kind of data overload. I think that is a very good uh, way to put it. Yeah, um, that aside, let's not focus too much on glucose monitors. But um, well, actually, no, Uh, we should probably between the three of us. watch. do you think it should be in the sport or should it be banned? I'm going to say it's going to I don't want it in the sport. For um, anyone but uh, Nobunori. I don't know.
1: I I know that it's already in training. And it's like do I Yeah, yeah, training it, fine. It, it, it's kind of training's like fine. it's my thinking of do I want it to be in in cycling? No, but do I think that it will be? I think yeah, it probably will do in a few years time I think that similar to power meters it will just come in eventually. I reckon.
2: Yeah i also agree i don't think I, I think i'm too ignorant on what the advantages will be well in terms of like what the advantages are of using it doesn't make that much of a difference there's plenty of research to be done in that there must be enough if it's being marketed as upping your performance and improving it yourself they're marked they're selling it for so much it must be good that i think it's fair to give them out on a therapeutic use exemption to certain writers who need it maybe we need to vary who needs it on a wider sort of availability to more people who might be susceptible to to low glucose and so forth but yeah i i think it's inevitably going to be part of the sport but just a thought i had in terms of the safety of it because we know the uci care greatly about safety um -hmm. is it a needle into your body like like is it like a I I know it's like a circular thing, but does it, like, connect inside your skin?
0: Yeah, Yeah. I think so. Then surely
2: if you crash, then that is prone to causing greater harm.
0: The infection rate could be quite high as well if it's, yeah, so. Because, like,
2: I I mean, it's it's the same thing as, like, I know in my high school, you weren't allowed to wear, like, earrings whilst doing sports. Like, isn't isn't it kind of the same thing where, like, you shouldn't really have, like, it's also kind of risky. There's probably plenty of research to be done in that field as well
0: yeah it's a good point but yeah if you're listening super sapiens we're keen for a sponsorship <laughs>
1: <laughs> ewan want to try it Can i get a free one, please <laughs> just give it a go
0: uh, but anyways changing the conversation from uh glucose monitors yeah well World Tour catalonia is happening we've got big names in there remco venable primos roglage we've kind of spoken about them uh remco and uh Rogledge in separate uh videos but Egan Bernal is also down on the start line. This was actually Patrick who wanted to talk about that. Egan Bernal, yeah, what's his future? We don't know how he's going to com- uh, do in this race. He's well, We know he's still coming, well, still on the comeback trail from that awful crash in Colombia last year. Was at the San Juan. Yeah, what do you guys think? What should Ineos do with Egan Bernal? He's one of the highest earners on the team, if not the highest earner.
1: I think it's still just a, a little too early to make a final judgment. But the reason why I wanted to talk about this is because, of course, he crashed just over a year ago. And it was a serious crash. But, of course, he's down provisionally to do a Tour de France this year. I think that's correct. And it's just a thing of, what are Ineos going to do if Bernal doesn't perform this year? Because they're going to be in a sticky situation where this is a person who they've invested a lot into... And if he doesn't perform this year, they think, oh my, he's just kind of taking up the, the payroll, which sounds really harsh, but it, it is in, in in this kind of in the sporting world, you you need to deploy your wages so that you can try and win things. That's, that's kind of the purpose. And it's like, if Bernard doesn't start performing, are they going to get rid of him? Are they, or are they going to be sympathetic and, and keep him on? Because I just kind of see this heading towards when Froome crashed... And then it was always, always going to make a comeback and then he never did. Is it going to be the same with Bernal? He's had a crash and it's like, oh, he's going to come back. But the signs haven't been that great so far. And I'm hoping that this fall to Catalonia starting tomorrow, because we're recording on the Sunday, will hopefully we'll see some good signs from him.
2: Yeah, I'd also quite like to see Bernal come back. Um, he brings something different to Pogacar and Wienergaard, which would be interesting to see them all fight at full force. It's just felt like there's been a lot of question marks. Yes, he won the Tour de France in 2019, before the big paradigm shift of cycling over the Covid break that we mentioned an awful lot. Post that, yes, he's won, he's won the Giro, but then there was that 2020 Tour de France, we had back problems that plagued the second week, and he cracked completely on the Grand Colombier and lost heaps of time, pulled out of the race eventually. Then that back problem ruled him out for the rest of the season. He came back to the Giro and then didn't really hit the ground running at the Buelta after a crash in the Buelta Burgos, I believe in 2021. Then in 2022 had that big crash. Yes, that ruled him out, rightly so, for the season. Came back very slowly and now he's got a knee problem, which takes him into this season and has delayed his start. I hate to say someone's injury prone, but it seems like he has been. I mean, he can't help it, I don't think. But it's, yeah. it just it just seems like bad luck is like he's absorbing it all. He needs to be wrapped wrapped up in bubble wrap and yeah. sort of protected at all costs because it seems like he's How just he's getting mean? involved in so many uh so many incidents and crashes and injuries. Wasn't there a diagnosis in two thousand twenty of scoliosis?
1: What's that? Oh dear, this guy can't catch a break, can he? Sorry, he's got yeah.
2: scoliosis, it was confirmed in 2020, how can he be a pro cyclist oh at goodness. the top level with scoliosis? Okay, they're, they're, they're like crunched up on a bike all day, surely that hurts his yeah. fine.
1: But I kind of draw a comparison also, when Jakobsen of course had that horrid crash in the Tour of Poland. Oh yeah. Um, you have to also perhaps draw a comparison to that, and Jakobsen is, you know, last year won a Tour de France stage, and he's come, come back to full force since that crash remco. so yeah remco as well a lombardia that took remco kind of more than like more than a year ish to really kind of fully recover from that so yeah i think that bernal is certainly not done with but i think that hopefully end of this year i'd like to see something i think realistically that would be about right um end of this year maybe mid this year at all we might see some good signs and then, you know, maybe it might be next year, but we really see full flight Bernal. But I'd love to see him, you know, because we saw him win Tour de France in 2019. And we haven't seen him go up against Pigaccia and Vingegaard. Like, it will be great to see uh, Ineos with their kind of poster boy from a few years back. See what he can do. See how he matches up against them.
0: They literally are missing that big head of state, uh, or however you want to say. But yeah, 2026, that is a long contract. So many of these... Guys
2: are now on long contracts. We're in a period now where long contracts are the norm for big riders. Um oh Gardscher sure, is contracted for a long time. Ayuso, Almeida. Um, Where's Ayuso? What's he doing? Ay- Ayuso's been injured for a while. Oh, yeah, okay. I think he's coming back in the Basque Country. But all, okay. all these guys, um, even Wingergo, Wout, Roglic was. We'll see about that. All on a very, very long contract. I think it's just normal that Bernard was signed for that long. They have belief in him. Being on that money for a long time, maybe it wasn't the right financial investment, but they believed in him. When he's when he's good, he, he offers up a lot. He's won two Grand Tours at this point. Been up there in Strada Bianca. He's done well in stage races. He won Paris. And he also proved that he could be a good domestique when he was running for Froome in 2018. That's a long time ago, but still.
0: The potential is there. That's the point. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. But with all these accidents, maybe every now and then we get sort of a great Egg but in moment, but it's not quite as sustained as Pogacha. There, I say a bit. I mean, to be fair, old Grand Tour stars were like that in, in the 2010s. When you think of Chris Froome, he'd give a couple weeks of absolute magic and then disappear for the rest of the season.
0: We're talking about that they desperately want to get back to the top step, very similar to Mercedes and Formula One, which is quite <laughs> funny because they're both in your sponsored. But yeah, Danny Martinez, we've spoken about him. They got rid of Adam Yates. Sibakov has the potential, but oh. now there's younger guns coming. Yeah, well, well. Sibakov, Sibakov said 20...
2: in, in the French press the other week that he's taking longer to, to mature
1: into a leader than he thought he would. Oh. Um so by what age 40 we'll see him doing good? <laughs> like, what? Yeah, exactly. when, when's it gonna be, Pavel Tom
0: Pickard. we've spoken about that as well. Him winning the Tour de France is like yeah. a wet dream for many British fans.
1: That's uh, been all downhill tour. I mean, he's... Limited TT. He's... Plenty of... De- pl- not a, a lack of mountaintop finishes.
0: Yorkshireman good... criticizing a Yorkshire rider. The Yorkshire just, rider.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm just saying, ever since he just... Just that crash at Torrena, it shook me. I'm just like, what, what are you doing?
0: <laughs> but, like, uh, do they have to look elsewhere for Egan? And wait? give him that time and then have some... Some temporary solution. Yeah. Roglic was floating about last year, which was funny. I mean, that would be... Quite an interesting move, but I doubt that'll
1: happen. Just one injury, to, like crash-prone rider for another. Yeah. Bit, basically, <laughs> it's just Roglic has about three get downs a year. think you look quite at, well this year? I, I looked at him. I was making a thumbnail earlier, right? And I was looking for images of Roglic. Looks it up on Google. Primoz Roglic. About half the images are just some kind of battle-worn <laughs> Roglic with some kind of scar on him. Am like, oh, For goodness' sake, this is. I'm like, I don't want this.
2: It's part of the story, it's part of the narrative. It is. But he
1: needs wrapping wrapping up.
0: He does, he does. Do you think it's uh, this year we get Egon Bernal back, or is it next year, or the year after, or know. will we never get him back, like yeah, you said no, with Froome,
1: Next year, I think next year.
0: Because like line. with Froome, he has the best, like Ineos have the best staff, like probably in the mm. whole sport. Well, maybe Yumbo. visma I would disagree. Yumbo visma
2: do. Yeah, yeah, okay. But like, I think, I think the problem there. Is, is that Ineos, since this big paradigm shift, are struggling to, to keep up with, with other teams. Where Ineos going to do, well, where Yumbo visma are doing different things. UAE have a sort of more creative approach. And Ineos is still still kind of riding a little bit like it's the, 2000, the 2010s. It doesn't quite work out. They've adapted a little bit, but they've been mugged a number of times, really. Last year's Giro d'Italia, prime example. Bora rode like a 2020s team, and Ineos rode the whole time like a 2010 squad, and they got mugged on the final stage by Bora. And, I mean, it will take a lot. I think Bernal looks more more like a rider from the pre-COVID era. That's when he won his Tour de France. Yes, he's won a Giro since then, but it wasn't the most competitive Giro start list. And, I mean, looking elsewhere, they have a a lot of really good young riders. Tim and I don't think he's a Grand Tour winner yeah. but he's a, he's a good young rider. I've always liked Lawrence de Uh he's a good co he's not a winner.
0: Ben <laughs> new um, Ghana. Uh, Carlos he's Rodriguez, been climbing well. He's
1: maybe rodriguez, rodriguez really
2: leaving as well so oh shoot
1: rodriguez that's a good shout Ineos, sort it out man what are you doing i don't know who they're gonna get because the thing is scouting has got so much more crucial and it's not like every talent's just like oh, i want to go to Ineos because they are the winners because it was not like you say it's not the 2010s where it's like oh they've got of them and i'm gonna go to this team because they're the winners it's like they're no longer the winners you know you get young talent going other places and like Ineos have missed yeah. A Yuzo. And they've missed Ita Brooks. And it's just like you, you gotta get ahead of the game.
2: And right? maybe
1: And, and maybe
2: well, skeptical. Looking at current sporting affairs, Ineos might be expanding into one of the biggest football clubs in the world, Manchester United, probably the biggest football club in the world, where we might have a takeover of Ineos. And the owner taking onto that, will they lower the budget of the cycling team, given that the football team will be taking up more of the focus? Ooh, it
0: must be peanuts. The the cycling team is like what Jim Radcliffe just finds in the back of his couch. Oh yeah, here I you know, go, guys. Just, yeah,
2: he's got. Well, he, he's using his the team to promote a car that nobody owns. Have you ever seen an Ineos Grenadier on the road? No. There are a couple guys. You think? Well, may, maybe they could have used their finances better. They've signed so many children. <laughs> um, for, on long contracts, Michael Leonard, who's eighteen, Josh Tarling, nineteen. Oh yeah. Oh, True. Michael
0: Leonard! Everyone's just been talking him
1: up. Like he's uh yeah. the... He's a track
2: rider. They probably looked at his stats somewhere.
1: Yeah. Then... <laughs> Pull up his Strava file right now. Well, it's like, it. well, what it's like? What's all we do? Robert
2: Firmino was scouted through Football Manager, so you never know. Maybe Michael Leonard was one of these sort of like they found his yeah. stats and just picked them up.
0: Osford said that he wanted to be the team to end the Tour de France drought of French riders winning it. How's that going? Like, Kenny well, Ellison didn't win it. It's not like they've signed any notable... Well,
1: uh, Pavel Sivikov, he could
0: be the French rider.
1: Well, they we miss Gregoire as well, then. So they're just, yeah. we're just, we're just we're, we're continuously just... they like, yeah, got all these yeah. aims, and nobody ain't... Nobody's coming in. They <laughs> miss Lenny Martinez as well.
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: I still, I would doubt a French rider would move here. True. Um, any sense of intent mm. The team is not very liked in France at all. Anyos, they're probably... During the 2010s, ratings of the Tour de France went down an awful lot in France. People hated Ineos. Really? There was a general collective sense of, we don't like Ineos, we want anyone but Ineos to win. If you remember 2017 and that time trial that ended in the uh, Stade Vélodrome in Marseille, when Chris Froome came in, the boos were echoing round. People don't like Ineos in France. That might also be why they never successfully signed a French rider. When Pavel Sivakov joined the team, he was young, and he was also a Russian rider at that point before he he uh, switched his nationality.
1: Yeah, that's true. Do you know what Jim Radcliffe should do instead of his money? Make a British Continental team instead. Good
0: transition. <laughs> uh, yeah, our final talking point is about British cycling. One of uh, one of the most successful, I would say, Continental teams recent of recent time. I forget their name. Oh, well, it doesn't really matter now, unfortunately. But they yeah. used to be the Canyon team, the Canyon Iceberg. They... They've been such a good feeder team for so many different teams, and uh, yeah, Tim Elverson, a very very nice team manager, unfortunately said that they didn't have enough funding for the remaining of the season. I think, and that team has folded with yeah very short yeah. notice.
1: Yeah, yeah. I know it just kind of came out. I know I just you down like oh, blow my neck. Because there was some promise at the start of the year. I was like, oh, they got like... Chris Lawless came and he was from Total Energy. And I'm like, oh, that's actually like a pretty decent signing. But they lost quite a lot of their riders to that... Oh, gosh, what's it called? Black Spoke something. The key, the the New Zealand team that's the Pro Conti team. Bolton Equities. Yeah, Bolton Equities, Black Spoke. So, so, like, a lot of their kind of good riders went there. But, yeah, it is a shame because they literally were really the, the last kind of hope really like they had a, a real good group of riders and they would usually win a lot of the things on the british continental scene rather annoyingly to a lot of people who are racing they just end up winning all the time all the town center races all the road races as well i guess the small silver lining is that at least those races might have a bit more competition to so the kind of layperson, the more regular person who can't ride 20 hours a week or whatever like a pro but it is a shame because it only leaves samperan because they are a continental team and trinity racing but like we've said trinity is more of a development team and some of their riders do do some of the british racing but for a development team and they largely spend a lot of their time doing the under 23 calendar in europe which makes a lot more freaking sense for exposure than for british scene and it is just the same because it's just british racing just seems to be dwindling a bit
2: I think the team folding is more of a result of a British scene that is not viable anymore hasn't been viable since COVID really there's been a number of reasons for this as a whole the racing doesn't seem to attract new people I I think that the racing scene is sort of attracting people who are involved in the racing scene but not sort of other people the races aren't broadcast live some are broadcast live to YouTube which isn't easy it's an open goal really but there isn't really exposure for the races, uh, the results aren't for the publicly available. The media sort of scene that works with it, so there's not really much energy going on there. They can't really, well, in terms of, from our perspective, f- from the media, a lot of these like publications who are writing on the domestic British scene can't afford to hire full-time writers or full-time content creators to work for them, which then just means that the content suffers and you can't get full coverage outside of what British cycling and the teams are giving you. And a lot of the teams can't higher communications people and so forth to, to to keep the to keep to keep the ball rolling. And because of this, sponsors is not particularly lucrative. We've seen that sponsors, I mean, they keep every national racing scene alive, but every British scene, every British race seems to have some commercial sponsor or whatever as like a title sponsor. It's a lot more commercially backed than other other racing scenes across Europe. So that's more sort of the British element of it. And now sort of post-COVID, post- Brexit, dare I say. There's nothing for for young riders to, to want to stay. Well, I mean, it's the first time, as we mentioned, on the channel, really. Is. Um, there's nothing for young people to, to stay in the UK for. There isn't. This is huh? why all these, all these British young riders are moving to Europe, so they can get their residency permit, and they can work in Europe. As a rider, if, if you're based in the UK as a rider with solely a British passport, you have 90 days of travel within the Schengen area, which is most of Europe, for up to 180 days. During that time, it depends on country-by-country basis, but most of the countries are the same in this, you cannot work. If these riders are going to races to sort of work and and so forth, it depends on what level, whether it's an amateur race, or whether it's a semi-professional or professional race, then you will have to go through a visa process or so forth. The visa waiver, which means like the normal 90 days of travel, does not apply if you're working. That therefore makes it very hard for British-based riders to work in Europe and, and to so forth in Europe. there are That's probably why there are very few riders now who are based fully in the UK who are on the World Tour scene. Fred Rye is the only one I can think of, but he might have a second passport that we don't know of. It's quite easy for British people to get Irish passports nowadays. That just, it, it makes it so 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 detrimental where, where these teams can't look out elsewhere. They have to fill their racing calendar purely in the UK and there's just not enough racing there. People aren't watching the racing enough to make it viable to create new races. We're not seeing new races evolve. We're not seeing the existing races innovate. The tourist series has been the same. If anything, the calendar's getting shortened. They're going to the same places. It has good potential to be broadcast as a sort of late night sort of cycling program. They they, they don't really live up that potential. Um, Similarly, the London Nocturne race, which was a good novelty. That was axed a couple of years back uh, to bring cycling to sort of the big city area, which to be honest, a lot of cycling in the UK is either rural or it's in sort of the periphery, uh, which does make it quite hard to, to sort of cultivate new audiences. So there are plenty of reasons why it just hasn't sort of yeah. victims of, of of a dead business model that's failing to rebrand. Is that in the hands of, of the team? No, they're victims of it. It's in the hands of British cycling, it's in the hands of uh the domestic race organizers and just the general British cycling ambiance, I feel.
0: Uh, yeah, I think you touch on completely the problem there. And yeah, like the fact that they couldn't even get live racing to catch on on like YouTube. Like normally when there's any racing, if you publicize it correctly, then yeah, oh well. But like just to put it in perspective, Tour Series, as I think we're all pretty much fans of this Tour Series when it was at its height. But since 2018, well, in 2018, we had Canyon Iceberg, which is the team uh, that has now folded. We had JLT Condor, which folded. Madison Genesis, which fouled as well, one pro cycling, which even went up to pro continental for a year, and Victor's pro cycling as well, and then Team Wiggins, which is Trinity, but like six teams, and now it's like two. It's yeah. Really it's really poor over such Denmark a short period. More.
1: Yeah. I mean, Argentina even... has more. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> How's this happened? Uh, I saw like you said just the whole. I mean, COVID didn't help at all. I'd say, obviously, the main catalyst in this was the loss of the Tour de Yorkshire, clearly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it kind I mean, of is, though.
0: That's true, though. high profile yeah. race. It, it doesn't make me seem like a just Gary kind Barretty.
1: of like... Yeah, it's just like me, just Yorkshire bashing. bashing. But it is kind of true, for the fact that we had the Tour de Yorkshire in, it was like May, and then we had the Tour of Britain. It gave these kind of domestic teams, these continental teams, two opportunities to express themselves on actual live broadcast TV. Whereas when you got rid of a tour to Yorkshire, all of a sudden you only have one event per year. And then the rest of the time, you're just bashing around crits, just putting your collarbone on the line to get a freaking 50 quid prem or something on lap eight. You know, it's just ridiculous how the, the, the mighty has fallen when we've gone from the days where we had so much competition and so many teams and then just slowly they dwindled away. I don't really know... What's the way back from this though? that's the main question. I mean,
2: you spoke about the, the tour series there. It never it never attracted international teams or riders. The, the, there was the odd sort of yeah, true. international writer, Enrique Sands, who used to ride for Rally.
0: Yeah, um, Rally's gone as well.
2: Yeah, and then Ampost, but then Ampost Asterix there, because a lot of the riders be either base in the UK or Ireland. Ireland in the UK also have a specific um common travel agreement, which is different to the rest of the EU. Finally, my EU law class is coming in clutch. Now they can't do that. They had the chance to sort of cultivate an international market to sort of prove post-Brexit that yes, our racing, it's really worth it, you should still come to the Tour Series, still come to the the Tour of Britain, and so forth, and it just, that ship has sailed, and now they're failing to to attract different teams, different nations to come to Tour Series. It's also an an administrative nightmare, really, as well, for what, Baloney, Brussels to come up to, or Middlesbrough to do a race on, on a Thursday evening. Don't knock
0: Middlesbrough!
2: No, I was I was just thinking of, of, of like a rogue place that's difficult to travel to in the UK. Um, Ouch! But 100% touristy would happen Middlesbrough? in Middlesbrough as well. But Or like Motherwall, there we go, put in a Scottish example. That's better, that's better. Nobody wants to be in Motherwall on, on another Thursday evening. But, regardless. I think I think the ship has sailed. It's going to take quite a lot to change it. I think the women's scene in the UK is probably brighter than the male, men's scene. However,
0: that's true. Um,
2: the women's tour is now currently crowdfunding um, okay. for its own mm. success, which isn't a great sign, but they still have the women's classic, which came from the embers of the men's Ride London classic, Uh, which was axed as a professional race, which was sort of a good chance to get Walter Racing in London and to get exposure to the UK uh, for top-level racing. But the women's racing is still going okay, although it's very England-centric. I I particularly noticed that I think a lot of UK racing is very England-centric instead of pushing towards Northern Ireland or towards Scotland. Talent pooling from those places, it's rare that we have talent from Northern Ireland or Scotland really coming through. A lot of it is English English or Welsh. Maybe that's also down to government funding because these are devolved powers. Scotland has their own uh, funding for leisure and sport and so forth, which is why they're hosting the World Championships and that why that's a viable option. But I don't know. It's, there are so many factors that we don't necessarily know about that might also be factoring into, this, into the demise of British cycling. But the fact that this team has folded is not great news.
1: I would love to see INEOS actually kind of, you know, as a British World Tour team, you know, that's where their license is. How much skin off their nose would it cost them to run a development team? And also, it, how in terms a, of a, just looking at racks. the other
2: development team, well, the other continental teams in the world, yeah. a lot of the are development teams from, from professional, from World Tour and pro-continental teams. Uno yeah. X development team, 1-0 Brussels development team, Sport of Land a development team. That's, <laughs> that's a new thing. It's sort of a post-COVID paradigm shift thing that didn't exi- exist before. Why don't any of us do the same, exactly?
1: Yeah, exactly. It's like, they've got the budget, and I'm sorry, but, like, they're not massively succeeding on their Grand Tour front at the moment. It's it's kind of like, how much would it cost them to really try and field? half a million, Th-
0: apparently. That's a continental really? team budget,
1: give or like, take. For, like, you know, 15, however many riders, they don't even really need to give them, like, you don't really need to give them bikes, just like, most people have bikes, just kind of like, do something, just have a team which riders in the UK can aspire to get to this level so that they can then, and then they pay for them to kind of race abroad or something, you know, because at the moment all the people aim for is get to the Dave Rayner Foundation, hope you get some money and then shift across to Belgium and hope to God that you do well in some commesses to increase your exposure. I just think that Ineos need to do something. I just feel like they're completely disregarding it and it's it's poor for a British world tour team to just be neglecting for a, a scene which is t- struggling when they have so much funding
2: But then would those Ineos development kids want to be based in the UK? Because having that EU residency permit would change the game for mm-hmm. them, which is why we're seeing so many of these youngsters go o- over to Europe at a young age so they can get their residency permit and get all the paperwork sorted so they can work professionally in, in the European Union as yeah. a professional cyclist.
1: True. True. Unless, they, uh, it's, unless it's like it's, you have to ride some racing in the UK. Yeah, like you have when, to do it. When these. they come back,
2: because there's no sort of... If they're based in, for instance, I don't know, Flanders, they deal with, with, with the Flemish and Belgium immigration there, base themselves there and then come back to the UK for a bit. There's no administrative problems there, because they can just work on their British passport and so forth in the UK.
0: Yeah, I mean, just from racing in the uk as well like any race in belgium they'll close the road rolling closure but like in england i think the attitude as well is like cyclings are the cyclists are the enemy so like amateur races are never closed completely which is Mm. a shame and i think it's just it feels like british cycling has dropped the ball here like we have the like up and coming golden generation for the uk now the wiggins generation if you want to call it coming through and then it's just like domestic cycling is just gone
1: yeah, it's so weird. We've got so many great riders going into the World Tour who are just full of potential, and yet somehow the domestic scene is struggling. It doesn't quite add up. But
0: uh, yeah, on that very sad note, I mean, the three of us really are upset about this, so that's why we wanted to talk about it. But Riders of the Week, more happy point, <laughs> okay, happy point, and uh, we might all pick the same rider here. Uh, Ewan, do you want to uh, start us off? Who's your Rider of the Week? Sanremo, I think, is too big of an open goal.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so i'm gonna say lawrence pithy of uh, new zealand he won the uh grand prix Cholet in the loire valley uh this weekend and came second in the other loire classic as well uh, he's a really good up-and-coming writer from new zealand wrote a really good nokia recourse as well earlier in the week uh, working with his Groupama teammates he's so so young provides a lot in this sort of sprinting hardy classic mold and i'm glad to see uh, sort of. Uh, New Zealand are doing well in Europe at this level. just—it's it, sort of a shiny example of why sort of these a lot of these UCI World Tour development teams are doing so well. They're scouting good talent, moving them to Europe as soon as they can, so they can
1: sort of flourish here. It's hard for me to pick a specific rider. I would like to give my rider a week just to UAE Team Emirates because of the. That's not how
0: it works. That's yeah, not, yeah, I know, but you can't just change the so rules. i
1: I'm, I'm going to episode eight. It,
0: you know the rules by
1: now. I'm going to give it to. I'll give it to Pogaccia because I, w- I wanted to give it to UAE because they really, they made San Remo pretty much. The fact for the, the pacing that they did set up the race and Pogaccia, I'm giving my ride a week because his, his attack, that really, I think made the Poggio uh, really exciting. Um, Even though we didn't win, I just think that he, he, you know what, he, he put his hand into the fire and he went for it when, when everybody else was kind of quite happy to, to sit in. so. Fair play. I rate the uh, the ballsiness of it. Also, UAE mm. was
2: so good at Grand Prix denan as well. Just adding to that,
1: good team effort
2: there, Miguel Biao. Three. Yes, they good did. Signs. Yeah, good signs. However, at um, the Coxeter Classic, they gave Ackerman the victory in a play, and he missed
0: it. Ackerman. Oops. Oh yeah, we didn't even talk about that race where Gaviria nearly won a race as well, but Turo Cycling surprised everyone.
1: Yeah, Milano,
0: Torino. Oh. oh, shoot. Yeah, Milano, Torino. There we go. I thought it wasn't Crookshider. But uh, my writer of the week is not, well, San Carlos in fifth, Mass Pillars in sixth. I'm surprised you didn't say Nielsen Paulus, Ewan. Seventh place after everyone. Well, we thought at one point it was Manus Court Nielsen. But I'm going to give it to Macho Van because he made my prediction in the early video correct. So someone has to give it to Macho Van like, <laughs> Yeah, We can't I'm not give th- it to Macho. Winning a monument. And then like,
1: oh, you're you're not right (laughs) over the week. We forced it on you.
0: But yeah, anyways, that's it for our eighth episode. Make sure to check out our Twitter account, our Instagram account, and uh, subscribe wherever you want uh, on the different uh, platforms as well. The podcast is available even on something called Podtail, which I've never heard of. So uh, yeah, like the video, subscribe to the channel, comment down below who your writer of the week is. And as always, thank you for watching and have a nice day.